Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medicom Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. In today's episode, we first speak with Dr. Stephen Wolf from the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in Richmond, who published in JAMA in late March 2023 that child and adolescent mortality rates in the United States rose by 20% between 2019 and 2021, which is the largest increase in at least 50 years, if not more. This increase in all-cause pediatric mortality has ominous implications. A nation that begins losing its most cherished population, its children, faces a crisis like no other. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Later, we have a discussion with Dr. Sergio Giralt from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York about the results of the KARMA-3, that's K-A-R-M-M-A, KARMA-3 trial investigating the efficacy and safety of idacaptogene viclozole, or IDACEL, in patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma. The findings were recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. How will this change the treatment landscape for patients with multiple myeloma? Enjoy listening. So thanks so much for joining us. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Steve Wolf. I'm the Director Emeritus of the Center on Society and Health at Virginia Commonwealth University. All right. So today I wanted to talk to you about this article you published just a few days ago in JAMA about the new crisis of increasing all-cause mortality in U.S. children and adolescents. This is quite shocking. Could you talk about the background a little bit leading up to this conclusion? Sure. Most of my research over my career has been focused on adults. There's been a real problem in the United States where we've seen life expectancy decreasing over the past decade. And a lot of that has been driven by increasing death rates in middle-aged and young adults. But the one bright spot in all of that was the death rates in children were going down like we want them to. In fact, pediatric death rates have been decreasing for most of the past century due to progresses in public health and uh, advances in in pediatric medicine and diagnosing and treating some of the most lethal causes of death. So it was with some concern that we noticed that in the last official reports from the CDC with death data for 2020 and 21, we saw an increase in all-cause mortality in the pediatric age group. Every age group above one So infants were the only age group that saw a decrease in mortality. All other age groups in the United States experienced an increase in death rates. So to what extent are we talking? Is this a minor blip? Is this this COVID-related? Do we have any idea where this comes from? Well, there was an increase in 2020 and then an additional one in 2021, and they were both very substantial. Taken together, it's about a 20% increase in mortality. That's, That's not insignificant. After we published the JAMA paper, we actually went back through some archival data to go back in history to see when this has last happened. And for sure, it has not happened since the 1960s, but probably even before that, the the last occurrence of an increase like this was probably the 1918 influenza pandemic. So it's not insignificant. Now, so that should be a huge call to action. And what would the recommendations be from your end? Well, it helps to sort of unpack what are the drivers of this trend, and that leads us to policy solutions. 
So, you know, this increase that I'm referring to is in all-cause mortality, which means deaths from anything. And we did a detailed analysis to try to figure out which causes of death were actually responsible for this increase. And it turns out that it's four causes of death, all in the category of external causes, using the term that is common under the ICD-10. And those four causes are suicide, homicide, drug overdoses, and car crashes, motor vehicle accidents. Those four are largely responsible for this increase. And it means that all the other progress in pediatric medicine in treating prematurity, congenital disorders, heart disease, etc., all of those benefits and all of that progress in lowering mortality is now being offset by these increases meaning that there are so many children and teens dying from these four causes that it's enough to tip the scales and increase all-cause mortality. Well, that's quite sobering. Could you go into a bit more of the preventable things? Car crashes are hard to avoid, but are they increasing? And what about suicide? Is that the number one cause of death in children and adolescents? Well, firearms in the United States are the number one cause of death because they are used in the majority of the homicides and about half of the suicides that occur in this age group. The fact that this increase was first noticed in 2020 and 21 led some people to think that this has something to do with COVID-19. But what we found is these increases in suicide and homicide started many years earlier. The increase in suicide deaths began in 2007. The increase in homicide deaths began in 2013. The increase in drug overdose deaths began in the years just leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic. Car crash fatalities was the only cause that actually began during the pandemic. The others were, were well underway. And so what we're seeing here is an accumulation of rising death rates across these four causes that together really were magnified during the pandemic and elevated all cause mortality. All of these are preventable. Many of them speak to a mental health crisis in young people. There is a growing prevalence of depression, anxiety, stress that we were very well aware of well before COVID-19 came along. The pandemic disruptions of being able to attend school and many other factors certainly compounded that, but there was a systemic problem already underway. The problem of guns is huge in the United States and the access to firearms, civilian gun ownership, the lethality of the guns have all increased So we worry that a lot of these increases of death rates have a part to do with mental health and social conflict, but also the fact that it's so easy to reach over and grab a gun at an impulsive moment, whether we're talking about a a teenager who's depressed and hopeless and makes an impulsive decision, or a street fight that, you know, when I was a kid, someone might have pulled out a knife, now pulls out a gun and the consequences are irreversible. Like I said, it's sobering. It's really hard to to hear all this. Are we at the point now where some solutions are being introduced or suggested? Well, it's, it's easy to identify the solutions. I think we need to do more to be more aware of the mental health of our children. This is a message for parents and family members to try to keep this on their radar because sometimes children are not forthcoming in sharing their feelings. It's also something that teachers and the community can be more attentive to. 
But the other part of the mental health crisis in the United States is the really fractured mental health care system. There is a shortage of providers, psychiatrists, psychologists, family therapists. Most health plans do not provide very good coverage for those services. There is a shortage of providers, and that was really compounded during the pandemic. So now if you want an appointment to see somebody, you really have to struggle to find someone that has an opening for you. And that's for adults. For children, it's even worse. So investments in addressing those kinds of problems are really an important priority. The second problem, firearms, is also an important priority. But politicians and others who are very resistant to gun control will often say, well, this is a mental health problem. It's not the fault of the guns. It's the mental health of the people pulling the trigger. But when they're away from the cameras, they don't pass any legislation to help with the mental health problem. So it's a bit of a disingenuous response. Really, we need to do both things. We need to address mental health, but we also need to do something about the absurd amount of proliferation of firearms in the United States. There are more guns in the United States than people. The problem is extremely volatile and political because of very strong views on either side about the role of the Second Amendment. But the point we make in this paper is that when it gets to the point that our children are now less likely to reach age 20, so we're getting to the point where children are less likely to reach age 20, they're less likely to survive to become adults, then the time has come to start doing something sensible about gun policy. And even if we feel that adults who go hunting and have other reasons for wanting to have a rifle are legitimate, there are a number of policies that can be implemented to protect children from having access to those weapons, which seems reasonable. But unfortunately, even those kinds of measures are being resisted by the gun lobby. It's a really frustrating situation, I understand. In the larger context, you've compared these data to other countries. How does the United States rank when you compare it to other Western countries? We're special, uh, <laughs> not in a good way. This is the area of research I've spent a good part of my career on, what's called the U.S. health disadvantage. It's true across many different aspects of our health that Americans are sicker and have shorter life expectancy than people in other countries. The death rates from diseases across all age groups, children included, infants included, are higher in the United States than in other countries. And even when we disaggregate the data by race and ethnicity and social class, we find even rich Americans are dying earlier than rich people in other countries. It does tend to be a bigger problem in adults, but this pattern of children doing worse than children in other high-income countries is, is unfortunately a familiar pattern. And what would be your comments or suggestions to fellow physicians about if you see this in a family, you see potentially you see a child perhaps with some mental health issues, what sort of actions should people be taking? Well, there's lots of tools available to do screening for depression, other kinds of affective disorders. That's important. It's also important to just raise awareness with the parents. If the physician is picking up on some signals that suggests that there may be some issues going on. Making sure that they're attentive to that, I think, is quite important. Physicians can also be very helpful in trying to bridge this gap between the parents and mental health services, because if they're left to their own devices to try to find a provider, it can be very difficult, especially for families that 
are of lower socioeconomic status or have language barriers, trying to navigate the arcane system we have in this country for getting to mental health is, is quite difficult. So physicians who know colleagues who are going to be able to help with these kinds of services can facilitate the referral of patients to professionals who can help with these mental health issues. I also think it's important to be asking families about whether there's a gun at home. When I was in medical school 40 years ago, we were taught that whenever we see a child for a well child visit, we're to ask about all kinds of injury risks. Is there a swimming pool in the backyard? What's the hot water heater temperature? Does the child wear a bicycle helmet when they ride their bicycle? Is there a gun in the home is another question to ask on that list. And if there is, is it kept locked? Is the ammunition stored separately in a locked box? Unfortunately, this is a question that probably doctors don't have to ask so often in other countries, but in the United States, I think we have an obligation to, given the proliferation of guns. That's quite amazing. And the work is ongoing, I assume? This is something that's updated regularly? Yeah, we're, we're continuing to monitor this. The data that we reported in JAMA are for 2020 and 21. We don't have reliable data yet for 2022, but we're going to be very eager to see what those numbers look like. It'll be fascinating to hear if there's interventions available to improve these outcomes. This is quite a wake-up story. Do you have any final comments? Well, one thing we did not mention, which is important, is the racial and ethnic disparities that we talked about in this report. These are not risks that fall evenly on children in different groups. For example, the risk of dying in a car accident is highest for Native American youth. The risk of dying from drug overdoses is higher in white youth. The risk of dying for homicide is higher in black youth. And the homicide and gun violence issues are very much concentrated in low-income, economically marginalized neighborhoods that have really been the victims of a long history of segregation and other aspects of systemic racism. So a lot of the solutions here around dealing with these problems has to go upstream to think about policies that are responsible for choking off resources to these communities and creating the kind of atmosphere where conflict and violence becomes more common. Well, thank you so much for your insights in this very important topic, and I hope that the mortality goes down. I just hope that we see better results next time. Agreed. Thank you for paying attention to this. No, it's so important. So thank you so much. And just a quick refresher, the next speaker is Dr. Sergio Giralt from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and he talks about the KARMA-3 trial investigating the efficacy and safety of Ida-Captagene Ficlosal, or Idacel, in patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma, and this was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So thank you so much, Dr. Giralt, for joining us. Congratulations on your New England Journal paper. It came out a few weeks ago. Could you just briefly start by broad strokes of what the landscape and how it's changed for treating multiple myeloma? Well, first, I want to remind you, this was really a great team effort, a multi-institutional, multinational study that was aimed at looking at the role of IDACEL, which is a BCMA-targeted CAR T therapy, in earlier lines of myeloma therapy, but still in patients who had been triple refractory and, uh, and exposed to a protosome inhibitor, an immune modulator drug such as lenalidomide, and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody such as daratumumab. And why did we want to explore it? Well, with the advent of four-drug induction therapy, 
it is more and more frequent that patients in which treatments are no longer working have already been exposed to the three major drug classes earlier in their disease journey. IDASL became commercially available a couple of years ago, but was only approved for patients who had relapsed after four or more lines of treatment. So the field is now in a situation where the drug that could potentially target PCMA, which is something that people in the initial lines of treatment never had, they would have to wait to get the commercially approved product because they had only one or two lines of treatment. So this was a randomized trial, a two-to-one randomization for patients with relapsed refractory myeloma who had anywhere between one and three prior lines of treatment. Patients were randomized two-to-one to receive either IDASL or receive what at that time in the countries that participated in the trial were the standard conventional treatments. You know, obviously, the treatments had to be given depending on what an individual patient was relapsing on. So there were five different, you know, standard chemotherapy combinations that were used in the control group. And, you know, to make a long story short, what we saw was a significant benefit for IDASL. Overall response rates in the patients randomized to IDASL was 71%, with 39% of the patients achieving a complete remission. In contrast, for patients getting the standard chemotherapy, the overall response rate was only 42%, and only 5% of the patients achieved a complete remission. What this translated to was a significant benefit in the primary endpoint, which was progression-free survival. Median progression-free survival for the IDASL group was 13.3 months. Median progression-free survival for the control group was 4.4 months. The study actually had a crossover design. So patients who had relapsed on the standard of care group were allowed to go on to get IDASL. And that's important because, A, the data is not mature enough to be able to, to do the survival analysis. But the survival analysis will be affected by the fact that a significant proportion of patients actually did cross over to the IDASL arm. Were there any specific aspects of the patient characteristics that entry into the study? Were there any differences in the groups? No, I mean, the groups were really well balanced for all the standard characteristics, particularly high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, uh, tumor burden, and extramedullary disease. So I think the baseline characteristics were really very comparable. Right. And what about adverse events? Were there any safety issues that came up uh, new or just were they consistent with previous findings with IDASL? Obviously, you know, all CAR T-cells that are commercially available have what we call the adverse events of interest, primarily cytokine release syndrome and the uh, neurotoxicity. In this case, there was, you know, cytokine release syndromes is relatively common. You know, grade one and two occurs in about 75 to 80 percent of the patients. However, grade three and four cytokine release only occurred in four percent of the patients. There was one patient who died from cytokine release. It was a patient who also had a, a fungal sepsis. Any grade neurotoxicity was around 15%, but grade three to four toxicity was extremely rare, only 3%. The most common toxicities with all CAR T cells that's probably due to the lymphodepletion chemotherapy, which was fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, occurred, but late pancytopenia was extremely rare. So, I mean, patients usually recovered their platelet counts within 20 days and their neutrophil counts also within 20 days. So... There were other deaths on study, very few, but they were all associated with infectious complications. And that is, I mean, remember, these patients are heavily pretreated despite only being one to three prior lines of treatment, and they are at risk for infection. And that's one of the reasons why these therapies have to be delivered 
in specialized centers with the adequate expertise and support. And what about death due to disease progression? Was there any significant difference between the groups there? So, yeah, currently the main causes of death for both groups was actually disease progression, right? So disease progression was the cause of death in 17% of the patients in the IDSL group and 17% of the patients in the control group. There was one, two cases of second primary malignancies in the IDSL group. But again, this is a group of patients that have a higher risk of second primary malignancies. Right. So I know that this is amazing data for patients, but what were some of the limitations of the trial? I think the main limitation with all CAR T cells is that patients have to wait. Although here we did see that most of the patients who were registered on study, you know, if you look at the concert diagram that's in the New England Journal paper, you know, 490 patients were screened and 386 patients were randomized, of which 254 assigned to the IDSL group, 249 actually were able to get leucophorist and then received IDSL. And this is why, you know, everybody's excited about off-the-shelf CAR T-cells because patients will not have to wait. I mean, there is a significant four to five week time period between a patient being randomized to the time they actually got the cells. And during those times, these patients with active myeloma can rapidly deteriorate. So many of those patients who we would have hoped could have been able to receive IDASEL did not. And I don't say many. I mean, so it's actually around, you know, 10% of patients failed to receive it. Then many of the screen patients were deemed ineligible for obvious clinical reasons, but many of those patients with the commercial product, we would be treating. So the creatinine and the hematologic parameters that were required to go on study were somewhat stringent. And in clinical practice, many of these patients would be getting ida cell. So I think some of the limitations that the study had will probably be eliminated if the product gets a label for an earlier use. And some of the limitations are inherent to CAR T-cells, and only when we have off-the-shelf products will it be overcome. I think for the field in general, the other question is, well, how does this change with the advent of T-cell engagers such as teclistamab and talketamab? And we're assuming that many of these T-cell engagers will actually be used in the community before a patient gets referred for a CAR-T because they will be available for community oncologists to utilize. They require hospitalization. They also require a certain degree of expertise to use and manage adverse events. But these are things that, you know, community oncologists are, you know, are accustomed to do and are very well prepared to do. So then, you know, will a CAR-T therapy work after having received another BCMA-targeted agent such as the Clistamap? And the answer to that question is we don't know. There is data emerging that if, if the BCMA-targeted therapy was more than six months, the CAR-T can still work, but it's limited data. Right. So there were a lot of trials that were reported, I think, initially at ASH 2021, I think, about lymphoma CAR T cells. And some of the data really showed that older patients really didn't have a problem with it. In fact, they were borderline significant in doing better. Do you see in that sort of thing, too, in MM? So we, so yes, we do not see a signal that older populations do worse. Now, remember, to be able to get a CAR T cell, you really have to have a performance status of 80 to 90, right? They did not allow patients with KPSs, uh, with ECOG performance status of two or greater. That, again, many of us in lymphoma have expanded that indication because we think if the performance status is poor because they have active disease, This is effective therapy. In myeloma, I think with the commercial drugs, we are starting to do that, that we allow patients who have a performance status that may not have allowed them to go on a protocol 
but because it's a good 70% response rate and improvement in quality of life. Although many of the patients relapse, or most of the patients have relapsed, as opposed to lymphoma, we're not necessarily seeing a plateau on that curve. But who patients who achieve a complete remission, that median remission duration is beyond 18 months now. Oh, that's excellent. So that is really hopeful. So I guess my final question is what's next on the horizon here for developments in this area? So I think myeloma therapy has really been revolutionized over the last 10 years with the advent of CD38 monoclonal antibodies, novel prosome inhibitors, combination therapies. I mean, you know, when I started doing this 30 years ago, the life expectancy of a myeloma patient, even after transplant, was around five years. Now it's doubled. It's more than 10 years. When I started doing this, only one in 10 myeloma patients were still in remission 10 years out. And now that number has almost doubled, right? So the main limitations for many of these treatments is access. So unfortunately, many myeloma patients across the United States are not getting what we would consider optimal therapy. Only 30 to 40% of patients who would benefit from transplant are actually being referred for transplant. And then, you know, we assume that the access to CAR-Ts will also be limited. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I think this is a very, very interesting story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.